Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring alien techno-signatures, possible ways of detecting alien life on exoplanets in our own galaxy. We'll hear how scientists are developing more ways of possibly detecting life beyond the traditional ways of SETI looking for radio waves. We'll hear how we might possibly be able to detect city lights on an exoplanet. And we'll hear how the first COVID-19 lockdown led to a new way of detecting life looking for pollution. To set the scene, here's Jacob Hack-Misra, Senior Research Investigator at the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. I'm an astrobiologist. I uh, study the habitability of exoplanets. I think about where... Uh, in the galaxy, we might find evidence of life, which includes all kinds of life, including technological or intelligent life. And, uh, you know, we do this by um, my personal work mostly involves using computer models to simulate the climate of different atmospheres. And then that helps inform um, uh, telescopic observations that astronomers do either with ground-based or upcoming space-based telescopes to, to look at these. So we're trying to kind of connect theory to observation and in this grand search for life. Are those atmospheres that you're putting into the simulations atmospheres that are based on planets that we've looked at or just that you theorize might be there? We do everything. You know, we start with what we know, which is present day Earth. Um, and we can look at Earth through time, which are kind of examples of how a real planet that we know has has behaved where, you know, maybe CO2 was really high or it was a cold snowball. There's all kinds of things. We can even sort of look in Earth's distant future beyond present day uh, climate change. Uh, we can look at Venus as an example of a planet that's undergone uh, extreme climate change and maybe try to, you know, examine theoretical cases for the past of Venus. Uh, we can look at Mars today. Um, where we have data for that. And then we can look at the fact that Mars looks like there was liquid water on its surface um, from just a lot of different kinds of evidence that we're finding. Uh, and so then we can use our, our, our climate modeling tools to try to understand what was Mars like in the past. And all those are examples that we can then try to extrapolate to exoplanets. And then, you know, when you go to exoplanets, the star might be dimmer, uh, the planet might be orbiting faster. Um, so, so yeah, then we get into the game of either you get these, these theoretical variations on what we know from the solar system. Um, but increasingly now, yeah, we're finding some real planets that we can try to use some of that data to constrain our models also. Like Proxima Centauri b is one example or the Trappist-1 planets. So we're just starting now to get some of these real planets that we can also think about. That are, that are different than what we would come up with with just looking at our solar system alone. But uh, we need to launch the James Webb Space Telescope and, and probably uh, something after that too. But the James Webb Telescope will probably be the first opportunity to say anything about the atmospheres of those planets. Would that data be sort of openly available to, to you and others? That's right. Well, the great thing about uh, NASA is since it's paid for by American tax dollars, uh, the data is available to the American taxpayer and, and, you know, by extension, everyone else in the world. Um, so, so yes, uh, you know, there's plan James, the James Webb telescope is not launched yet. Um, you know, fingers crossed for that to happen at some point. Um, but once it does, um, the first round of, of, um, observation selections have already been made. And so there will be some observations of the Trappist one planets. Um, and, and I'm sure Proxima B, well, I don't know if I can observe Proxima B, but I know Trappist, the Trappist one planets for sure. 
Um, so uh, yeah, you know, that data will be available. Right now, what we have to work with is we know the masses of the planets. Um, we, we know how far away from the star they are. So we can say something about, you know, how they, they orbit. And uh, we know something about the star itself. How much energy does the star put out? How bright is it? Um, and so that in and of itself, we have, we don't know anything about the atmosphere, but at least that's some constraints to start with. And um, so, so yeah, myself and, you know, collaborators, we have looked at, for example, the TRAPPIST-1 system or Proxima Centauri B using the constraints of just the physics of the planet's orbits and, and the star itself. Um, and then say, well, what if it was an Earth-like planet? What if it had a really dense CO2 atmosphere? You know, what are the range of conditions where it would be frozen or warm? Um, acknowledging that none of those are probably really what the atmosphere is, but it's at least until we get more data, we can explore just the possibilities. Is it even realistic to think about liquid water being on a planet like this. And if you can come up with some scenarios, then that's a justification to point your telescope at it to, to look even, even further. Um, because it's expensive, you have to choose targets. So if you find that, hey, this planet is probably always gonna be frozen no matter how we configure our models, but this one here looks like there's some cases where it could have an ocean, you know, that, that's how we prioritize some of these targets. When you say the trap is one planet, is it, that's the is it seven or so that were all in a line? That's right. That's right. It's a it's a red dwarf planet. There's yeah seven rocky planets uh, all orbiting around the star, um, all you know roughly around the same order of magnitude as an Earth or Mars type planet. Some a little bigger, some a little smaller, and, and at least one and up to three of which are in this kind of liquid water habitable zone that we talk about. Um, and so, you know, that it's, it's not exactly the same as our solar system because it's a smaller star, the planets are closely packed in, but, you know, in some sense, if you squint, you know, it's like, well, that could be earth in the middle and Mars at the one end and Venus at the other end. It at least reminds us a little bit of that kind of, of a system where you've got three planets straddling this, this potential habitable zone. Do you have a favorite exoplanet? When I say your favorite, I think, um, well, I think what I mean is the one you'd first like to turn the telescopes to. I think the best exoplanet candidates have yet to be discovered. So um, I think TRAPPIST-1, the, the system, the seven planets, and then Proxima Centauri B, uh, there's potentially other planets around Proxima Centauri. Um, th those are really exciting because they were the first uh, nearby planets that demonstrate that not only I mean, we knew that exoplanets exist, but you know a lot of them are really far away just because of the methods we use to find them. And so the fact that there are nearby planets that are you know approaching this Earth-size uh, planet, not like super Earths or not a Jupiter-sized planet, but really what we want to look for, we want to find you know how common are Earths elsewhere. So those are exciting because they demonstrated that this search can be done, that there are Earth-like planets nearby, we can start looking at them. But, you know, in astronomy, the first things that you find, there's what we call a selection bias. So you, you're going to see the things that are easier to see first. That doesn't necessarily mean those are the most interesting things or even the most abundant things. It just means they're the easiest things to see. Um, and sometimes it's luck and sometimes it's, it's, you know, a lot of other factors. So I think we're just on scratching the surface of looking at nearby Earth-like planets. So yeah, my favorite planet is to be discovered. Uh, maybe it'll be found by the, maybe the test mission, which is, is operating right now is, is surveying a lot of nearby planets. And so, um, yeah, poss possibly in a few years, 
uh, ask me again and I'll have a new favorite planet. What's your dream planet then? What are you hoping to discover? Well, something, uh, you know, nearby, uh, nearby in the sense of, of, you know, tens of light years rather than like many hundreds or thousands of light years. Because, I mean, what do we want? We want to think about something that we could, you know, traveling to is a long distance possibility but you you could never think about traveling across the galaxy but you know maybe we want we just want to explore it more we want to have high resolution images maybe we want to send an exploratory spacecraft to it someday that would take a long time anyway so the nearer it is the more information we're going to have and like you know i like to think about techno signatures and communication with other life forms if there was actually communicative life there well the distance the shorter the distance the, the easier that's going to be also you know, I, I don't necessarily uh, bias myself towards sun-like stars. Actually, my favorite are orange dwarfs. The sun is a yellow dwarf, a G-type star. And so I kind of like orange dwarfs, K-stars. Um, so just stars are just a little dimmer than the sun, but not so dim that the planet is kind of in this tidally locked state where one side always faces the star. Um, so that's like these, these the Trappist system is a red dwarf. And so that's one of the potential problems that one side is always being baked by the sun, one side's always cool. That might or might not be a problem, but just, you know, what's my favorite? I would say just a little dimmer than the sun. They're longer lived. You have more time for life to take hold, more time for evolution. So, you know, I almost wonder, are we a little bit of a fluke by being around a G-dwarf star, by being around a yellow star? And maybe there's more inhabited planets around slightly smaller stars where they just have more time. So I, I would get excited if, Tess found some some Earth-like planets in the habitable zone of some orange dwarf stars that were nearby. Cool. That sounds good. I like the sound of that. But tell me, what are you looking for in the atmosphere of these planets? Well, we call them biosignatures. So the idea that um, when you look at a, a planet like uh, uh, Mars, for example, and there's CO2 in its atmosphere, um, carbon dioxide, and, and some other things. But if, if you compare that to Earth, there's there's some constituents of Earth's atmosphere that are due to life. So water is from our ocean, but that's, that's you know, needed for life, so that's a good start. Um, but our atmosphere is oxygenated because of, of life. And so if you were to look at a planet and you saw water, vapor, and oxygen, you might get excited because that reminds you of Earth. Um, and in fact, with Earth, one of the things we specifically lo look at is um, not just oxygen, but the com combined presence of oxygen and methane. And so, you know, the reason for this is you don't want to, maybe you find oxygen on an exoplanet, but how do you know that it was made by life? Just because life on Earth made oxygen, we can't necessarily assume that, that life, that, that oxygen elsewhere must be made by life. And in fact, that's one of the things we do with these theoretical models is think about what are all the different ways that you could make oxygen? And so, you know, I, I don't particularly do that, but some of my collaborators do. And, and there are oxygen false positives where an, an uninhabited planet just through geologic and photochemical processes alone could have oxygen in its atmosphere. But if you have oxygen and methane, that's really unusual because the methane is destroyed really fast when there's oxygen in the atmosphere. And on Earth, the methane and oxygen are both from life. And the fact that at any given time, you can see both of those things means that there's this continual source. So that's a lot harder to think of how do you get oxygen and methane in the planet's atmosphere without life. So um, that's, that's the smoking gun 
biosignature right now that a lot of astrobiologists think about. If we were to see that, um, it would take some effort, of course, with probably more than just the James Webb telescope. But in theory, if you were to look at a planet and see water vapor and then oxygen and methane, that would tell us that there's something like Earth's biology, you know, maybe not animals and humans or, you know, of course not humans, but, but, but just in, a, in, a, in, a, in terms of the biosphere uh, and, and the, the, the flux is going into the atmosphere, you would think there's a planet that has some sort of biosphere that's putting oxygen and methane into the atmosphere. These signs of life, biosignatures, are one potential way of finding life on exoplanets. Research by people like Jacob has suggested that we might find signs of life in technosignatures. Here's Jacob again. You know, I gave one example of a biosignature. Now, there's plenty of others that might not be based on Earth. So you can already just start to think of what else might biology do. Um, and, and if you follow the news, there was this idea of phosphine on Venus that people are still looking at. So, you know, I... We won't get into that, but that's that's trying to be creative, you know, that, that maybe the idea of finding phosphine in an atmosphere is indicative of another type of life that, that's really different than Earth. So technosignatures are really an extension of biosignatures. I, I, um, it, it's but just looking at, well, what else does life do to an atmosphere or a planetary system? So life can put oxygen into an atmosphere. Life can put methane into the atmosphere. But if life can also evolve to the point where it develops technology, where, you, you, you know, like we as humans use stored sources of energy, whether they're fossil fuels or collecting solar energy or, or other things. And, and we, we create materials and release uh, constituents into the atmosphere that uh, would not have been possible without that technology. And so, um, you know, one thing I'm, I'm researching right now, a, a project that's almost done, is the detectability of chlorofluorocarbons. So that's one example. These are uh, the, the ozone-depleting molecules. They were banned by the Montreal Protocol in the early 90s. But, but they're potent greenhouse gases, and they're made, they're, in, they're industrial products. They're used as refrigerants and cooling agents and blowing agents. And we have alternatives that, that don't damage the ozone anymore. But um, if you had enough of these, you know, a bunch of these in the atmosphere, even, you know, just a little more than we had in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, could be detectable with one of these future missions. So we think of things like that. What are atmospheric pollutants that might be detectable? Just as an aside, if you're looking for something else to listen to after this, the late Professor Mario Molina, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering that CFCs were causing that hole in the ozone layer, was a guest on this podcast back in the May 2018 episode. But Jacob's been involved in some fascinating research, which suggests another form of pollution might be a potential technosignature. My colleague Ravi Koparapu sent me a message you know, during the, the first lockdown of the pandemic, and uh, there was some NASA, you know, some satellite images over uh, China, and then we later saw this for the United States and other places, uh, that was before and after periods of the, the first period of lockdown and uh, everyone stopped driving and factories shut down and there was a huge decrease in nitrogen dioxide, NO2, in the atmosphere. And we realized like, oh, I guess NO2 is a technosignature. Uh, there, there is nitrogen dioxide made by other processes. It, it's, it's a very simple molecule, nitrogen and, and, and two oxygens. Um, but, you know, then we looked into it and we realized that, you know, there's, there's ov the overwhelming, you know, by about a, a factor of 10 or, or so, um, the overwhelming sources of NO2 on, on Earth are from combustion. 
Um, and then actually, if you take away combustion, a bunch of it is actually from agriculture also, which is, is a techno signature in, 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 in a different way. Um, but but it's, it's a byproduct of combustion, um, just as, as you're burning you know, fossil fuels, or, or it could be from, from you know, a, a nuclear explosion also. Um, it's just there's nitrogen in the atmosphere, and there's oxygen in the atmosphere, and just as a byproduct of a high energy combustion or nuclear explosion, you get NO2. Um, and so we started thinking about, well, what's the detectability of this? Is this something that, that could be observed? Uh, either if someone was pointing a telescope at Earth, and then conversely, if we're looking elsewhere for Earth-like planets, um, is that something we could, we could think about? And, you know, we can think about how much NO2 we have today. We could look, you know, a little bit in Earth's past when we weren't um, as aggressive about controlling pollution. So NO2 levels were a little bit higher. Um, and then, you know, we could also speculate about just much, much higher levels, either because you purposefully want to have an industrial planet and maybe you don't care about who lives there. Or more interestingly, uh, we go to these orange dwarf stars and the red dwarf stars. And actually, just because they have less high energy uh, photons, light particles kind of hitting the atmosphere, um, you don't destroy the NO2 as fast. And so you might build up higher levels of NO2 on those planets. And so you, you would get a stronger signal for the same amount of, of NO2 emissions. Um, so so it's, it's something that conceivably could be done with some of these upcoming telescope designs that we're thinking about. If you were a Proxima Centauri B, would you, if you had a sufficiently good space telescope, be able to look back at Earth and see that we just had a lockdown and our NO2 had gone down? Yes. If, if, if you were an alien astronomer, I mean, that's just a bit limited by the size of your telescope. Um, and, and Proxima SNB is a close system. So, right, if, if you had you know, observing in the you know, optical ultraviolet um, at high resolution, continuous observations, um, yeah, there's no reason that you couldn't. We'll return to some possible techno signatures in a moment. But I wanted to know more about the coming telescopes that will help us to potentially find them. First up, is the James Webb Space Telescope, which seems to have been on the horizon for some time now. In many ways, it's the successor to Hubble, learning from what we discovered from Hubble and looking deeper and in different ways at the universe, and it will help in the search for life. Here's Thomas Beatty. I am an assistant research professor at the University of Arizona, and most of what I do is I work on exoplanet atmosphere characterization. So once we find exoplanets, um, I use space and ground-based telescopes to observe their atmospheres. Um, and these days, specifically, what I most, spend most of my time working on is I am part of the instrument team for the NIRCAM instrument on the James Webb Space Telescope. So that's one of the four cameras on Webb that I work specifically on uh, conducting exoplanet atmosphere observations with, with NIRCAM. NIRCAM is a near-infrared uh, detector, so it observes from about 1 to about 5 microns. Uh, most of our exoplanet atmosphere observations will be happening from about 2.5 to 5 microns, much longer wavelength than visible light. And there is a, a grism that we use for spectroscopy in the, in the instrument, so 
light comes in, we'll get a spectrum on the detector and we'll be able to use that spectrum to measure these uh, atmospheres of these planets. When is this going to happen? When is James Webb Space Telescope going to launch? Actually, it's very exciting. The, uh, the ship with JWST just arrived in French Guiana uh, yesterday evening and they're doing the unloading today. So launch looks like it's on track for December 18th and then commissioning will last probably until about July 2022 and then science operations will start shortly thereafter. So we'll start doing some of these observations in um, probably late summer or in the fall of next year. James Webb Space Telescope has been something promised on the horizon, something when, when that launches, then we'll be able to find what we need. Is this the case? The short answer is yes. I think that when Webb starts operating, it's going to be a complete, it's going to be a revolution in how we understand particularly exoplanet atmospheres. Um, actually, my prediction is that for the first year, we're going to get these results that nobody understands because I think that the data that we have so far has been, it's been the best we've been able to get. And I, but it's still not very good. And so we've sort of swept under the rug a lot of the modeling complexities. And I think the quality of data we're going to get from web is going to be such that we're going to see all these new things that we now need to take into account that previously we've just sort of felt like we can ignore because the data hasn't been good enough. And it's going to be a real gold rush for a couple of months. Really? Would you expect that within the next year, I'll be speaking to you again and we'll be going, look what we found. I hope so. We're uh, part of the NearCam team. We have a big observing program um, to observe about a dozen exoplanet targets to look at their atmospheres. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to, we're going to be able to map their day sides for the first time. Um, we're going to, I think, be able to look for some of the cloud structure, like the spatial cloud structure, uh, which is something we've never been able to see before. Like really look at, see if there are weather on these sorts of planets. Um, it's going to be, when this starts coming down uh, next summer, next fall, it's going to be tremendously exciting. Yeah, oh, it's exciting. I'm excited already. Techno signatures, though. You'd be looking for techno signatures with James Webb and Nick. So James Webb is actually going to be tough to do techno signatures with. There are some things you can do. The, the nitrous oxide pollution um, actually would be probably be too difficult to see with JWST, but with some of the next generation telescopes after JWST, um, you can see it. And you might be able to see CFCs in web observations, but you would need a very, you'd need sort of a particular observing setup. You'd need to look at say, an Earth-sized planet around a white dwarf, which is a very favorable radius ratio there. White dwarf is about the same size as Earth. And so, um, that makes it a much simpler observational problem, but that's a very, that's a setup Earth around a white dwarf that we have not actually seen uh, yet uh, in the universe. We don't know many Earth-sized planets around white dwarfs, so that doesn't mean they don't exist, but they're just, they seem to be pretty rare if they do. So Webb probably won't be the best for looking for techno signatures, but I think it's an excellent, it'll be a great start for uh, characterizing, you know, the rest of these atmospheres and the first step towards determining just overall habitability on exoplanets. Science fiction has, of course, speculated about alien life on other planets ever since its inception. And in the Star Wars universe, there's a planet-wide city called Coruscant. Hopefully we wouldn't discover such a thing in our own galaxy, 
But it turns out if there was, then we could. The next step after web that everybody's thinking about right now is trying to do what's called direct imaging observations. So most of what we're thinking about doing with web and specifically what I'm thinking about doing is you take like a, a transiting planet, a planet that passes in front of its star and you don't separate out the planet and star. They show up as one pixel on your image, but as the planet passes in front, sunlight or starlight is filtered through the planetary atmosphere and that sort of imprints the atmosphere spectral signatures imprint themselves on that starlight as it passes through. So you never actually see the planet. You sort of do these tricks where you pull out the spectral signatures um, by virtue of the fact that the planet's passing in front of the star. But the, the hope and the, the, the plan for sort of the next generation of these big observatories is, okay, let's actually go try and take images, get pictures of these planets. And again, they're not gonna be pictures like a resolved disk, they're gonna be a single pixel, but we're gonna get a single pixel that's actually of Earth around a star like the sun. If you start doing that, that really opens up the ability to really detect um, a lot of biosignatures. That's what a lot of people are thinking about, is we're gonna be able to take images of planets like Earth, we're gonna look for biosignatures, we're gonna see if there's life uh, on these planets. So there are these big missions that are currently being considered right now that would launch in about 2040. Um, you know, one of them is a 16 meter mirror in space that's gonna be able to do this, this giant engineering project. Um, and that's all been driven by the desire to find biosignatures, find life elsewhere in the universe. But part of that is to find biosignatures, you need very sensitive equipment, very sensitive detection limits. And so all of this, sort of engineering development has been spurned by the desire to find biosignatures. But uh, as a result, we also are uh, reaching the point where we can use, uh, use the same instruments to search for technosignatures. So we can search for technological signs of life rather than just biologic signs of life. Um, and one of those, if you're getting these direct images of the planets, is you can look for lights on the night side. So most of what people think about is let's look at the day side, let's look for oxygen, let's look for water. But you can also look at the night sides of these planets. And on Earth, the night side is not dark. If you're in orbit around Earth, you can see city lights from the surface of the planet. And on Earth, most of our city lights are sodium, uh, sodium lamps, which means that they're putting out a lot of energy in a very narrow wavelength range. It's sort of, it's a spectrally concentrated emission. It's very distinct. It's, you know, neon sodium, excited sodium, which is very, um, not naturally occurring on, uh, on earth, right? You don't have naturally occurring neon lamps hanging around and it's a lot of it. So it's a very, right. It's a very particular emission signature. That's very concentrated. That's very distinct. And so, um, what I was looking at was, could you detect these sorts of signatures with these next generation uh, observatories? And, um, and it ends up that you couldn't detect Earth. So Earth, the city, our city lights are too faint to really detect easily. But if you assume that say in a hundred years, we're gonna have 10 times the amount of cities on Earth, uh, that would be detectable by these next generation observatories um, on, so we know that there is a potentially habitable planet around Proxima Centauri that's about the size of Earth, that's at the right distance from the star. Um, if you looked at that planet in direct imaging, you could detect cities about 10 times 
denser than Earth's, which uh, if trends continue, should, we should hit by about the late 2100s. Um, and then further out, Alpha Centauri, Tau Ceti, Epsilon Eridani, sort of the nearby stars, um, you could get um, 100 or you know, substantial factors of Earth's cities you could start detecting. So Earth has about uh, half a percent of our land area is covered by cities that emit. Um, most of these you'd be able to detect in single digit percentages. So, uh, you know, 10 times or you'd need 20% of the surface of the planet to be covered to be able to detect it. So hundreds of times, which depending upon what you think about how, you know, an alien civilization would construct their cities, you know, could actually be possible. Yeah. Coruscant. Right. Well, yeah, Coruscant is an excellent example, right? Because that's the limiting case is, okay, let's say we have just a planet-wide city. There's actually, there's an interesting bifurcation, it turns out, between when you say planet-wide cities, between people who think Coruscant and people who think Trantor from the Foundation series. The real divide line between people who were born in like the late 70s, about which way they were born. City, you could detect out to parsecs, so you know, 20 light years, and you could see one of these. And in principle, if we built one of these large observatories, we could actually just run a survey. We could look at all the nearby stars, we could look for these planet wide cities, and um, presuming we didn't find one, right? Because if you found one, then you're done, you've, you've won, right? Um, but presuming we didn't find one, you could start placing really interesting upper limits on the prevalence of these. Uh, in the galaxies, in the galaxy. Like say, if you did the 50 nearest stars, which is feasible, uh, that would be able to, you could put a limit of uh, four or 5% on the frequency of these, which um, would be a, a useful constraint to have in something like the Drake equation, where we try and estimate the total number of intelligent civilizations in the universe or in the galaxy. So I should say there are some roughly Earth-sized planets that we think are in orbit around Tau Ceti, sort of at the right distance. But we have no information about what their surfaces are like, what their atmospheres are like. Um, we have a rough estimate for the radius and masses, sort of how big they are. But you know, they could be exact duplicates of Earth, and we would have no idea. And they could be coruscants, and we would have no idea at this point. So that's the exciting thing about I think doing you know building these next gen observatories is we can start really drilling down and asking these questions and getting answers for the first time. Uh, if I had a, a magic wand and I could give you telescope time on any of these coming observatories. Which one would you pick first and where are you going to point it? The easy answer there is there are one of the architectures that's being considered as something called Luar A, um, which is just, we're going to put up a 16 meter space telescope in orbit uh, and look at things. And if Luvoir A were built, uh, I would immediately start looking around at the planet around Proxima Centauri. Because that it's in the habitable zone, it's the closest planet, it's gonna be the highest uh, signal to noise, the easiest thing to look at, um, and really drill on it and see, see what you get. I, I will say that the, the decision for what sort of next generation observatory is gonna be built is actually happening right now, or has been happening, that discussion has been happening in the community for the last year and a half. And the results should be released pretty soon. It seems hard to believe that the decision is gonna be, let, let's build Louvoir A, the 16 meter, version there are that's the largest possible if we could have anything we want what would we build uh is let's do that uh there are a lot of other uh proposals that are an eight meter or 
you know, a six meter um, telescope. And I think it's much more likely we get something like that um, rather than the giant, you know, we get everything we ask for. And is that going to limit whether you can see what you're looking for significantly? Right. So the, so specifically about Proxima Send, the, the unfortunate thing is that the way these imaging observations work is you're constrained by the, the diffraction limit of your telescope. So just physically how large your telescope is determines the angular separation you can resolve. Planet around Proxima Sen is visible to Luar A because you have 16 meters, you can resolve very fine spatial and angular scales, so you can actually separate it from the star. But all the other architectures that are being considered that I think are probably more likely to be selected don't have the diameter to be able to resolve them. You know, you're not going to be able to separate them, so you won't be able to do it. But that doesn't mean we can't do anything, right? You can still do Alpha Centauri, you can still do Tau Ceti, Epsilon Eridani, all the nearby, you know, a lot of other nearby stars you can do meaningful searches around. That'll probably happen once these get selected and built 20 years from now. But James Webb is coming very soon, Anthony. I hope we'll speak again. I hope so too. There are a lot of ways in which Webb goes wrong during launch and deployment, but there's been literally hundreds of people who spent the last 20 years trying to make sure it doesn't go wrong. So fingers crossed, uh, everything works out. And, and yeah, we start getting good results next summer. Amadeo Balbi is an astrophysicist and a lecturer at the University of Roma Torvigata, and his research focus has moved from cosmology to astrobiology, and he's been looking into technosignatures. I always had these, you know, two big questions, and that 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 uh, actually drove me to to make science, and ever since I was a kid, actually, and one one was how everything began how, how did everything start uh, and the other is uh, whether we are alone in the universe or not and this you know these these are two really big questions and i i think the first one it's not that we understand everything completely about how the universe began and how it evolved but i think that in in the last you know few decades we we made some you know big progresses in in, in the direction of a full answer and we have a very very good model which is the big bang model which i you know i spent my 20 years in my in my early career working on and and, and so i think that, that there are many things that we understood and and comparatively speaking the other question is a question that we know almost nothing about and so i think it right now is probably more interesting at least for me i'm curious about that and i i, I thought it was interesting to to make a switch there are two questions how do you look for life in general and how do you look for technological life uh, which is a subset of life and, and so in, for the first question there are a number of biosignatures that people think are are very suggestive of the presence of life, like oxygen, methane, and other and other uh, gases that can be in the atmosphere and that can signal with very high probability, although not completely uh, unambiguously, the presence of the presence of life. Uh, for technosignatures, there are a number of suggestions what to look for. Uh, radio signals, of course, are one possibility. Uh, the other possibility is artificial light the other is you know some molecular uh, species some elements in in the atmosphere that are produced by by some kind of technological activity 
And then there are fancy other, you know, probably more more uh, speculative ideas, like for example, big structures, mega structures. In in the past, Freeman Dyson in the sixty in the sixties proposed that a very advanced technological technological civilization can think of um, building a vast set of, for example, solar panels around uh, around the star, so to get more energy from the star. And if you extrapolate this, you can think of uh, Dyson thought, well, you can actually build a, a full shell, a full spherical shell around, uh, around the star to get all the, all the energy from the star. And admittedly, this is a very speculative uh, idea, but it's not, um, it, it's not uh, completely impossible. And you can look for that. You can look for, for either partial structure that may cover the, the light of the star in some you know, specific way, or you can look at waste heat from the, sta- from the structure, because in this, if you have the entire star covered by, by this shell, you wouldn't see the star directly, but you would see this shell emitting some waste heat in the infrared, for example. So you, you would you would get some anomalous emission from 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 this kind of star. And there are many many others. I mean, the, the list is very long. And actually, it, this is one of the things that you can uh, be very creative and imagine very 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 strange and very almost science fictionary things. Uh, but but the important thing is. For any of these uh, speculative idea, you can predict or you can imagine what would be the 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 uh, observation that you would be able to do to to get evidence that this is happening. Okay, and and that's that's what the the field of techno signature is trying to do. As for the longevity issue, my study uh, uh, showed that that if you look at all the possible techno signatures that can exist in the universe. Um, and and there is a, imagine that there is a distribution of them out there, and there is no preferred epoch when these technosignatures appeared in the history of the galaxy. Then, by some you know re- relatively simple argument, you can show that you're gonna pick only the very old ones, uh, and and only that the ones that we can detect with higher probability are the ones that are very long lived. So, so that's another thing that you can do. You can look for, you know, specific techno signatures that you imagine can last for a very long, long time. Okay, because if you think of radio signals, for example, uh, our civilization started u- using radio signals for communication a hundred years ago, and probably if you look at the Earth from outside, from 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 a distant point. Uh, in in a few centuries, you won't see these radio signals anymore because we will, for example, we will beat cables and we will not communicate by electromagnetic uh, signals propagating in, in space, but we will communicate with optical fibers. I'm, I'm just making you know this uh, this uh, prediction here, and and if this happens for the entire planet, you won't you won't get any radio signals. So this means that the duration of time when Earth was emitting radio signals uh, in, 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 in space only lasted for, for a very short time, uh, 100 years or, or 200 years, which is a very short time in the in galactic uh, sense, okay, over, over the duration of the entire galaxy. So that's probably not the right thing to look at. You want to look for things that are more persistent, that can last for 
much longer time. Like, like pollution, for example, or, and, and again, this is an, another, another uh, speculative idea, you can imagine that even if you look at radio signals, uh, you, you, you may look at things that are emitted intentionally. So you may, you may think of a civilization that has a lot of energy uh, and that can uh, build beacons, for example, that can, you know, be very powerful, they can be uh, looked at from a very long distance and they can last for hundreds of thousands of years or million years in principle. And, and this is another thing that you can look at. Yeah, so there, there are both unintentional technosignatures, like for example, pollution, or intentional technosignatures where there is a civilization that wants to be uh, discovered, so to, so to speak, or wants to communicate over interstellar distances. And also megastructures, the ones that, 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 I, that I was alluding before, like, uh, like Dyson spheres, or for example, satellites, if you have a belt of satellites around the planet, in principle, you can detect that because uh, the shape of this belt of satellites around the planet can obscure the light of the star in a, in a specific, peculiar way. And these satellites, in principle, may last for, for, for a very long time compared to other technosignatures. Okay, but I suspect that launching that many satellites into orbit around a planet is really going to annoy the ground-based astronomers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> With longevity of technosignatures being such a limiting factor, it's possible that biosignatures, which could obviously last for much longer than technosignatures in an atmosphere might be more likely to give us the first signs of life on an alien planet. But here's Jacob Hackmissera again. So I would be more excited if we were to find a technosignature, not just because of the science fiction aspect of it, because, you know, we could even find some drifting alien junk or, or something like that. But you know, the, the, the thing that I take away from this for, for us here on Earth is what are the hard steps in our future? You know, there's a lot of big challenges in terms of like global sustainability and population and, and these big questions. And if we find technosignatures, we at least know that it's possible to get past the hurdles we have and become this long lasting technological, perhaps spacefaring civilization. If we find biosignatures everywhere and not technosignatures, then it, we don't know. It might be really, really hard to get to that point, and maybe this is it. And so I think I would be more encouraged to find technosignatures. If we found biosignatures, I actually might get a little more worried that we have a bigger challenge ahead of us as a species than we might otherwise have thought. I'd like to thank Jacob Hackmissera, Amadeo Balbi, and Thomas Beatty for talking to me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. And if you'd like to know more about this topic... Grab your copy of the Physics World magazine, where you'll find Scanning the Cosmos for Signs of Technology, a feature by David Appel, which looks at this topic in the October edition of the magazine. We'll be back next month, and thank you very much for listening. Physics World.